Well, good morning. If you want to open to Acts 17, that's where we'll be in, uh, in just a few minutes. I want to uh, echo what has already been said. Uh, big word of thanks to those that came out yesterday and uh, helped us get the building cleaned up. It looks really, really good, as you can see. Uh, if you notice it from the highway, it looks really, really good. Come inside, it looks good. Uh, so thank you very, very much for those that were able to be here and, uh, and help out. We really appreciate it. And then, as was mentioned too, um, we solicit your prayers as we get ready to go to camp in just a little bit. Um, my nieces are here. They've never been before. Reese has never been before. Miles has never been before. So we got lots of first-time campers going from, from here. So that's really exciting. Just pray that they have a great week. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. They're going to be studying the book of Daniel this week, and so uh, just going to be a, a really good week. We'll be praying for them. I also posted on the Cornerstone page that, you know, if you can send them a postcard, mail, whatever, they love to do that. Make them sing for it or, you know, whatever you'd like to do. You know, just write that right on the on the envelope or the postcard, whatever you send, because uh, I mean, it just thrills them to no end to get to do that. So uh, be praying for a great week, and uh, we're leaving just as soon as church ends. And so if I, you see me rush out, I, that's where I'm headed. Uh, it's not because I don't want to speak to you. It's because we've got we've to be there for a staff meeting in just a little while. Uh, but having said all that, I'm really excited to be here. I'm really, really looking forward to next Sunday. I hope that you are too. It's going to be really, really good, and I think there's going to be even more that's going to make it better that I'm not going to tell you about right now uh, just because. It's, just, it, it's, it's building. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be really, really good. You will be blessed by, one, hearing John Mark, and then, two, participating in the morning's events, uh, just you don't want to miss it. It's going to be such a uh, such a good day. Now, I don't know if you have noticed, but but I have, and I think you probably will agree. But does it seem like uh, does it seem like people have a harder and harder time getting along these days? <laughs> Yeah, your laughter answers that. I mean, it affirms that for me. You know, it just, it just seems like we cannot get along anymore. You know, should someone dare to express a opinion, an opinion that is not mainstream, you know, they are subject to being skewered in the court of public opinion and comment. You know, and this is, you know, one of the, you know, I, I, I like social media a lot. I think you can do a lot of really good things with social media, like what we do to talk about the church and let people know where we are and those kinds of things. But at the same time, I think there is a side of social media that is really, really bad for the soul. And it is when somebody expresses an opinion or a comment or whatever, and then you know, you go and read the comments section of someone who does not have that same opinion, okay? And, and a lot of times it's, you know, it's very well done and it's very kind and it's, you know, it's a respectful disagreement. But then a lot of times it just kind of devolves into some nastiness. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever read a comment section? 
It, I mean, it's, it's like the bane of humanity so many times. And I don't know why it is we're like that, why it is that we feel like we can just say whatever it is we want to say uh, because, you know, somebody will say something, somebody else might disagree with it. Well, here's why I think you're wrong. Here's why I think, you know, I'm right. And a lot of times what happens is then it sort of then just kind of slides into character assassination. Well, you're an idiot. Well, you're dumb. Okay, well, I might be, but you haven't told me why, you know. And it just can get into some really ugly mudslinging and some really nasty stuff. Now, fortunately, Christians don't do that stuff. <laughs> right? Right? No, we do. We do. I have seen some ugliness from Christians both within the church and from within going out to those outside of the church. Uh, you know, I've, I've been a part of churches that have split. Uh, church I worked for in college. Uh, the preacher there told me a story that caused a split, about a split that had happened some time earlier. The original carpet in the building had a lot of age on it and it had gotten some moisture and so it was moldy and a health hazard and whatnot. And you would think that everybody would be in favor of ripping that out and putting down new carpet, right? Not so. There were some from the old guard that said, no, we're not doing that. We're leaving this here. I'm not worried about a health concern. This is the original carpet in the church. We're going to leave it. And it split the church over carpet, over health. You know, it just it, it doesn't make sense. Uh, the, uh, in, in that same area, there is one particular county that has 64, 64 churches of Christ. We think, man, that's great. The gospel of Jesus has really been spread there. And I don't doubt that it has. But the thing is, when you start researching, you realize there are 64 churches because at least 32 of them couldn't get along. Okay, now maybe that's a little bit of an exaggeration on the numbers. But there's a lot of them because they just they couldn't get along. There would be a disagreement and they would fight and it would get ugly and it would get bitter and feelings would get hurt and so they would just they would just they would just split. The church that I attended as a kid on the, the north side of Atlanta was a, was a great church and it was just really growing and in the early 90s we were knocking somewhere around 550 on Sunday mornings. And then a group kind of came in and they up and fired the minister really without cause, only it was just, you know, he was giving us a whole lot of Jesus and a whole lot of grace. And that church went from about 550 on one Sunday to a few weeks later to 125. Okay? And I, you know, I don't think God was happy with that. Okay, I don't think God is happy when we, we do things like that. Now then that's just that's just churches, but then there are Christians that, that kind of perpetuate some of these things as well. I don't know if you are aware of it or not, but do you know that Christians uh, uh, just kind of on the whole have a reputation for being some of the meanest people around? Are you aware of this? This is I mean, this is a prevalent attitude that Christians are seen as some of the most vicious and mean and ruthless people that are around. 
One time, several years ago in my ministry, somebody suggested in, in written form that you know I'd be fired from the church I was working for, but they would be very happy to keep Bethany. Now, I understand that. I get that. I might even agree with it a little bit. But come on, man. What am I supposed to do? Just leave her? I mean, yeah, okay, well, you want her. Well, I'll just, we'll just divorce and make it better. Make it better for you. Okay, but that was, that was hurtful to suggest something like that. But that's the thing, is that Christians can be some of the meanest people around. Uh, last week, I read an article about a, um, a, a Christian band. Now, then, there's all kinds of Christian music, and some of it I like, and some of it I just... This is called Christian metal, as in heavy metal for Christians, okay? It is Christians that play heavy, uh, heavy metal. Sometimes it's referred to as Jesus metal. Sometimes it's referred to as heavenly metal, okay? But it's for people that like that kind of music, and so they write that music, and they play that music, and it's just laced with, you know, themes of Scripture, and love, and forgiveness, and grace, and acceptance, and God's good, and God's not mad at you, and God does love you regardless of what everything else speaks, okay? And I don't have any problem with that genre of music. It's not my personal preference, but I don't have any problem with it. But the article said that the singer of this particular band left that band, and not only left that band, he left his faith because he had expressed some sort of opinion that I guess went against the, the mainstream thought, and the hardest backlash and criticism he received was from, was from Christians. And because of that, he ended up walking away from his, from his faith entirely. You know, and we just wonder, why is that? You see, and, and, and there's, a, there's a takeaway right here, and it is this, that being a Christian is not a license to be rude or self-righteous. You with me? It is not a license to be rude. It is not a license to be self-righteous. But a lot of times we do that. You know, we rail at people we disagree with, those, those sinners. Tell them they're going to hell. You know, that's not our job as Christians. Can I get an amen on that? That is not our job. Our job is not to tell people they're going to hell. Our job is not to humble others. Our job is to humble ourselves before God and be Jesus to people whether they are Christians or not, right? And so it just, you know, when I see this stuff, when I hear this stuff, I can just imagine Jesus saying, you know, this is not my prayer that I prayed in John 17 for unity the night before I died, you know? There's some ugliness going on here. You see, instead of that stuff, Instead of being ugly, instead of being attacking, instead of being rude and self-righteous, we have to seek common ground with people. Okay? We have to, and, and even if you are, are talking to somebody that you absolutely, wholeheartedly, diametrically oppose to everything they say, there's at least one thing you can agree on, that you're both, we're both human beings, Right? that we're human beings, and if we can find nothing else, then reduce it all the way back to our common humanity, that we are all people. 
Okay, and we start from there. We find common ground. We have to learn to make sure we see that in others. As we come to Acts chapter 17, Paul is going to encounter a situation that is going to require a lot from his, I think, from his mental and his spiritual faculties to deal with a, a situation that's, that's pretty ugly, you know, because Paul likes to find himself in those situations. He's in Athens because he's, once again, on the run for his life. Remember? He went to Thessalonica, and it went pretty good, and then they chased him out of town. And he went to Berea, and he came across this group of people that were really excited about what he had to say, and they received the word with, with gladness and, and, and sincerity, and they wanted to know more about what he was talking about, but they didn't just take him at his word. They went and did what? They searched the Scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying matched up with the Word of God, right? Well, then that, that the group of people that didn't like him showed up, started causing trouble, and the Bereans were not content with this. They weren't going to let this happen, and so they put Paul on a boat, and they, some, of, some, some of them went with him. They escorted him three miles down, uh, 300 miles down the coast and, and, and took him all the way to Athens to ensure his safety. And, and Paul sent word back that as, as soon as you get there or as soon as it's okay, send Silas and Timothy along. So there Paul is in Athens, and Paul doesn't ever seem to sit anywhere very long. He goes and he, you know, he's just out seeing the sights. And it's there that he encounters something that is deeply troubling for him. And it leads him in the situ into the situation we're talking about today. Begin reading with me in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was troubled within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worshipped God and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Then also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers argued with him. Some said, what is this pseudo-intellectual trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be preaching foreign dignity, uh, deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and they brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching you're speaking of. For what you say sounds strange to us and we want to know what these ideas mean. Now all the Athenians and foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. Paul is out, he's walking through the city of Athens, and of course Athens is a, is a place that we're familiar with. Athens is a city that still exists today, and it is the birthplace of philosophy, the birthplace of Greek philosophy. You know, Socrates comes to mind when you think of, when you think of, of, of ancient Greece. Okay, and it's just this, this place of incredible learning and incredible knowledge and, and wisdom and so many people would look to the Athenians in days gone by as just these absolutely brilliant people. And by the time Paul rolls around and, and, and sets foot in Athens, it's not quite as well known for that because you have these Epicurean philosophers and you have these Stoic philosophers who tend to, to hold on to the old stuff, to the original teachings, and they don't kind of progress 
a little bit, but they are there. And what they do is they just sit around thinking stuff up. Because that's what they do. And then Paul is walking through and he becomes very distressed because he notices as he's walking through that the city is absolutely full of idols. Okay, and Paul being a good Jew, being a good God lover and follower, being a good Christian, knows that this is not right. And so he's, he's troubled by what he sees. Well, then some of these people, these, these intellects, these philosophers, they, they hear what he's saying and they begin to say things to him. Did you notice, did you notice verse 18? It said, what is this pseudo-intellectual, or your version may say babbler. What is this babbler saying to us? Now then, that word for babbler is one that I want to focus on for just a few, just a few minutes because I think it's really important. And I don't like to do this a whole lot, but I want to talk about the Greek word for just a second. Okay, the word there that says babbler or pseudo-intellectual, uh, if you're reading the message, I think it even says airhead. Okay, the word there is a Greek word and it is spermologos. Okay, compound spermo meaning seed and logos meaning word. Okay, so what they're saying is what is this guy, this seed picker, saying to us? A seed picker was somebody who would listen to, to, to different things. Oh, and that sounds good, so I'll take that. Oh, yeah, and I like what you say there, so I'll take that. And, oh, I really like how that person used that argument. And they just sort of nitpick things. They pick up little seeds here and there, and they just kind of put it together in this, this hodgepodge philosophy. Okay, so what they're saying is that this guy, who does he think he is? He's just this hayseed. He's just this seed picker who really can't tell us anything. They are... They're insulting him. You see it? What is this guy doing, this, this empty-headed guy? They're accusing Paul of picking up just bits and pieces of information and then just, just spitting them back out. Now then, from what I can see, Paul has, Paul has a couple of different options. Okay, He has a couple of options before him because, after all, he is a man of God, is he not? And he is a powerful man of God, is he not? And he knows how to reason from the Scriptures because we've seen him do it over and over and over again. Have we not? Okay, now then, it never usually goes real well for him. He usually ends up getting chased out of town somewhere. But it's because he is able to, to say these things and he's able to argue and make good points. And so there's this option that is available where he, as God's man, as God's messenger, because he is an apostle, could stand up and say, you guys are absolutely wrong on this idol stuff. You know, you're completely foolish. You know, I mean, you, you know that this stuff is just made from wood and from, from gold and silver and, and stone. You know that there's nothing holy about these things. I mean, you are, you're supposed to be the smartest people around. But you're knuckleheads. You know, that option is available to him, but watch how he handles the situation. Verse 22 says, Then Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus, or what might be known as Mars Hill. Now then, Mars Hill is not a place, okay? Mars Hill is the Athenian high court, okay? So he is standing now in the court, okay? And he says, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. Then notice verse 23. 
For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. This, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, He is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is He served by human hands as though He needed anything since He Himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. Do you see what He's doing? He easily could have blown their doors in. He easily could have said, you guys are a bunch of idiots. But he found the common ground. Did you see it? He says, I'm walking along and I see you guys are really religious. You worship. Hey, I worship. And you've got a lot of inscriptions to all these different gods because the Greeks had all these kind of gods. Okay? They had so many gods. They're kind of fearful of the gods. And you don't want to run afoul of these Greek gods. And they're so concerned about running afoul of these gods that they have one to an unknown God just in case they happen to have overlooked one. Okay, not that he wouldn't be insulted by that. But just in case, here's one to the unknown God in case we've overlooked. Okay? That's how concerned they were about it. And Paul could have said, you guys, come on. He says, I, you know, I see that you guys like to worship. And I even saw one to an unknown God. That unknown God is what I'm talking about. I'm not a seed picker, but I, I'm actually talking about something real. I'm actually talking about something that's, that's full of life. This God, he made the world and everything in it, which was, by the way, Verse 1 of our call to worship, did you notice that? Psalm 24, 1. God made everything. He made all that. He didn't reside in this, this human stuff, this craftsmanship. And, and, and God doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need to be served by human hands. He is the one who gives life to all. And with that appeal, he's going to get the attention of the Epicureans. Because the Epicureans believed that the gods were, were far off and they wanted absolutely nothing to do with the humans. But yet Paul has just said that God, the God he's talking about, the unknown God, is the God of all of life. That everything springs forth from this God. He continues in verse 26. He says, from one man, he made every nation to live all over the earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries where they live, so that they might seek God, and perhaps they might reach out and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and exist, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are also His offspring. And right there, He's going to capture the attention of the Stoics. Because He's, he's, he's quoting their own people back to him. That saying comes from Aratus, who is a Stoic philosopher, and he's just saying, hey, your own people talk about this. We're all his offspring. And he continues, verse 29, being God's offspring then. We shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by, by human art and imagination. 
Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because He has set a day on which He is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man He appointed. He's provided proof of this to everyone by raising Him from the dead. You see what He's doing? He's walking them along. He is appealing to the common ground. Okay? And He is walking them toward God. He is walking them toward Jesus. Saying, hey look, God's overlooked ignorance in the past, but now He's given proof. He's given proof of His Son and resurrection and there's life through this, through this, through this, this one that He's talking about. God is not in this human stuff. God is in life, and He's everywhere. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule Him. But others said, we'll hear you about this again. So Paul went out from their presence. However, some men joined Him and believed, among who were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demaris, and others with them. That's a great story. Now, and the story is good, but the lesson there is, is even better. Okay? Because we encounter situations like this all the time, right? I would, I would venture a guess that maybe a lot of our encounters don't have to do with anything necessarily spiritual when we find ourselves in disagreements. It seems like the thing that most people fight about nowadays is politics. Right? And it also seems that as soon as we get in a disagreement with somebody, we've got to be enemies. Have you noticed that? What's that about? I mean, surely we're deeper enough, I mean, surely we're deep enough to disagree with somebody and yet still remain friends with them, right? But yet a lot of times our words and our actions don't reflect that at all. Have you noticed that? And that, I don't think that's God-honoring, do you? Now then, I'm guilty of this too, so don't think I'm pointing all the fingers like I don't ever do this, because I'm just as, as guilty as anybody of doing this. But there's a, a point that has to be made, okay? And it's as we, we interact with people, and this is our, our community connection for the week, and it's, it's simply this. Meet others on common ground and point them toward Jesus in your words and your actions. Does that make sense? It is so much easier. It is so much easier to take the high, condescending, you're wrong and I'm right. Okay? Now here's the thing, too. You know, I've had people tell me, before. You just think you're right about everything. Well, yeah, of course I think I'm right about everything. Why would I purposely hold a wrong opinion? I mean, if you want to think about it, you think that about yourself too. I mean, if, I determine, if it determines that I'm wrong, then I change it to the right one, and then I'm right about everything again. But there is, there is a simple and a wrong way to address people that we don't get along with. And that is to prove 
how right we are. By arrogance and superiority or name-calling or whatever it is, right? But that's not the way to do it. We're never called to do that. We're called to be like Jesus in all situations, right? This is exactly what Paul does. Now then Paul... I don't think Paul was a genteel person at all. I think Paul was probably hard to live with. I think Paul would probably get on your nerves. Okay? I think he would be irritating. I think he would be draining. Okay? Because he never seems to stop. He's always pushing. He always has something to say. Okay? People are going to disagree with Paul. We know that. We've seen that. Okay? But did you notice how Paul handles each of these situations? He never blows people's doors in, right? He never tells them they're stupid. Now then, at one point, he does say some pretty harsh things to some people, but it's because it's keeping others from coming to Jesus. Okay, He is going to tell one group of people to castrate themselves. He does say that. But as he's dealing with people, and especially outsiders, he doesn't rail against how wrong they are. Tell them how dumb they are. He just makes his case. And he points people to Jesus. And this is exactly what we see in Athens. And, you know, it's, I don't know, it's it's pretty... It's pretty um, powerful, I think, maybe is the word, that here he is in Athens, this place that's just known for all of these great minds and these schools of philosophy and all of these different people, and yet he, the, the wisdom he demonstrates in the middle of that. You know, he easily could have just let them have it. He easily could have moved on. But he chose to say, okay, hey, you're religious, I'm religious. The unknown God? That's That's... The person I'm talking about is the unknown God. All of life comes through the unknown God. Now then, it says that not everybody believed. In fact, they even ridiculed him some more. He is just a seed picker. But it did say others believed. So as we deal with people that we don't agree with, whether it be politics, religion, lifestyle, whatever it is, Again, there is a simple and a wrong way to address those people. And it is to go guns blazing. Blowing doors in, screaming, yelling, you're wrong, I'm right. Now then, that doesn't mean you can't point out some things that you believe to be wrong, but there's a way to do it, right? There's a much better way to do it. Find and establish the commonality. And then begin walking them toward Jesus. Just like like Paul did. And it doesn't mean that they're going to agree with you or you'll change their mind. But I think we get a lot farther with kindness than we do with rudeness. We get a lot farther with love than we do with words just laced with, with vinegar. Does that make sense? And see, and, and I got that last part, your words and actions, because I think that's important because a lot of times 
we can say things, but people are not going to believe it until they see it, correct? Okay, but I also think there's a other side of the coin. Okay, I think too that if we're, you know, we can do the right things, like we can go serve and we can go, uh, we can go to Providence Plaza or Vashti or wherever, and it's kind of easy to do those things. But then with our words or our Facebook post or social media, man, we can undo a lot of goodwill that we've acted upon. Does that make sense? So we have to be mindful of these things. Okay, we always have to seek to find common ground point people to Jesus in the things that we say and in the things that we do. Okay, and this goes for all people. Okay, as we deal with Christians, we have to deal with one another in love. As we deal with non-Christians, we have to deal with them in love. Does that make sense? This is what God calls us to. Uh, One of my professors, Earl Lavender, he says this, and I'll leave you with this. He says, no one is beyond hope when the message of Jesus is presented in a meaningful and compassionate way that connects to his or her interests and questions. Does that make sense? That's how you do it. Okay, that's, I mean, that's how we have to do this. And I pray that God gives us, one, the understanding that he gives us, then he gives us the, the words, the wisdom, the patience to interact with others. That, that we might not agree with, that we might not get along with. I don't think we can get along with everybody. I just, I think we're human, we got a lot of sin, we got a lot of stuff, you just, there, there's just some people that you cannot get along with, but we can treat those people with dignity and respect and love. And we have to love them. Does that make sense? So what we need to do, find common ground, point people to Jesus in our words and in our actions. Let's pray.